The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, where we're continuing along in our study of this book, looking at the um, middle of Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, considering this part of God's Word. We're in the practical section of the book. Let us read and hear God's holy Word. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray. Father, may you give us eyes to see wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it look like for a person to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we all have some idea of what it looks like to be filled with various emotions, maybe joy or grief or anger. The young Theodore Roosevelt endured the terrible experience of having both his mother and his wife die the same night in the same house, one upstairs, one downstairs, of different causes and sicknesses, but he was there going back and forth from room to room as he endured this great loss, this double loss. And this grief so filled Roosevelt that we read in biographies that he threw himself into his work in politics in New York State. The pain in his heart might be dulled by sheer fatigue, it would seem. He put it in these words, Indeed, I think I should go mad if I were not employed. Often in those days, after those deaths, the only sleep he got was on the overnight train from New York City to Albany. And then after a few months of this, Roosevelt, if you know anything about his life, would head out west to the Dakota Territory and the far-flung town of Little Missouri, where even more remotely was his ranch house that he had built a few years before that, and he would be utterly alone there for a time. Roosevelt's grief showed up in his life. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? I would like us to see three commands or three interrelated principles from our text as we think about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. The first is, to walk in the Spirit is to be careful about our walk. To walk in the Spirit is to be careful about our walk. We find this 
in verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The Christian life is like a walk. And the book of Ephesians has talked repeatedly about the Christian walk. It begins using that word in chapter 2, verse 1, where it describes how these Gentile believers used to walk. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's how they used to walk. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, after they have come to know Christ, we see him urge them, I urge you, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is where the practical application of the epistle begins. He starts off, he launches that chapter and that very practical exhortation part with this calling to walk worthy of the Lord. Later in chapter 4 and verse 17, he reminds them, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he contrasts what believers walk what their lifestyle is to be like in contrast to Gentiles. And then we get down to chapter 5, verse 1, and he's bringing to mind the example of Christ, and he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in verse 8 of chapter 5, the nearest reference to our text, he says, Walk as children of light. So he said a lot about how they're to walk, and now he adds this idea to all that he has said up to this point about the Christian walk, and he says, now take care about the way you walk. Look carefully. Be careful about how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, treat your Christian walk and life seriously. Don't be haphazard about it. Not as unwise, but as wise. There's a way to be wise as Christians. And in a sense here, he's summarizing all these practical applications he's piled up in chapters 4 and the first half of chapter 5. All these put-offs and put-on. All these exhortations about how to live in a way pleasing to the Lord. Think about it. We are all careful about the things that really matter to us. Maybe it's our job, our family and home. Maybe it's some hobby we have. Maybe it's our clothes and our appearance. I remember back in my high school and early college days, soccer was the thing that I was most careful about. I look back and think how a group of us friends at, in high school would go to school an hour ahead of time. How do you get high school boys at school an hour ahead of time? Because we wanted to practice soccer skills. And we wanted to just do ball handling and things like that because we really wanted to get good at it. And I remember when I was college and I worked in the admissions department of, of the school and I had a lunch break. This was over summertime. And I had an hour lunch break and the gym was right next to the admissions office. And so I would eat my lunch before or after lunch. I would have it there as I worked. And then at, at noon sharp, I would run out of the admissions building, run to the gym, get changed, get on my bike, ride my bike to the soccer fields, which were about half a mile away, practice soccer as much as I could with just enough time to ride back furiously to the gym, 
shower, and get back to work. You can tell what I was careful about. That was what I was living for at the time. And if that's true for soccer or for your job or for a hobby or for some aspect of your life, Paul's saying, even more so, be careful about your Christian walk. Do you treat your Christian walk as something that will take care of itself? Or do you give careful thought and effort to it? Think of how the farmer plants his crops, and he thinks about rotating the fields, and he thinks about the nutrition they'll need, and when to plant, and when to plow, and when to do all the various things. Or, or think of a student attempting to get a Ph.D., and he plans it all through, when, his, when he should get his master's, how he's going to get his student loans, what subject he's going to do his thesis in. Or think of a builder building a house. He doesn't just say, oh, slap it together, you know, we'll be fine. No, there's a lot of thought about it. Or a musician learning an instrument, really learning it right so that all the, um, the method is right and so all the, um, the manner of holding the instrument and so forth is right. And so we need to think, are we being serious about our walk with God. And there's a special aspect that comes up here in verse 16 with the use of time. In applying this, in terms of being careful about our walk, the apostle mentions using time wisely, making the best use of the time. The NIV has redeeming the time because the days are evil. There are a number of Greek words used or that could be used for time. One is the word chronos, and that you can obviously know is the word from which we get our word chronology. That has the sense of um, the following of one event on, en- on another. So there's a chronology maybe for a history textbook. But that's not the word used here. The word used here is rather the word kairos, which means a moment that is especially significant or favorable. Matthew twenty six eighteen has it this way. Jesus says, my appointed time, my kairos is near. I think of it, I think of that word uh, when a wedding's about to take place and I'm standing in the robe room with the groom and the other groomsmen and we hear the chimes sound and everybody just takes a deep breath because we know as soon as the chimes are done and it's like the moment frozen in time because we open the door and walk out and For the groom, this is a big moment. He's going to watch his bride walk down. It's like Cinderella, and when the clock is striking midnight, it's a significant time. And the the verb here, when it says making the best use of the time, has this sense of buying back, redeeming, reclaiming it or rescuing the time from waste, availing yourself of the occasion, we might say, improving every opportunity for the Lord and seeing time as a precious commodity. And the reason giving here is because the days are evil. We live in evil days. That's always been the case in this fallen world. They are days in which sin abounds, in which Satan is active, in which people are going into eternity apart from Christ and we're called to make wise use of the time. Galatians 1, 4 speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That characterizes it as well. This is a present evil age. And the way of wisdom here, and, and when we think about our walk with God, is to seize these moments for the Lord. 
Not in a frantic kind of way, trusting in him, of course, but it's like the hymn, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Someone once listed this advertisement, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes, no reward offered, for they are gone forever. Interesting thought. The idea here is time is a precious commodity, and even more precious when you think of time in light of God's sovereignty over history. He is sovereign over the great events. We would say the macroscopic way in which we view history, over, over the, the great news events of the day, but he's also sovereign over the, we could say, the microscopic, over our daily lives, that not a hair falls from our head apart from the will of our Father. And we know, Scripture says, God has a purpose, and God is concerned about how we use the opportunities, the moments he gives us day by day. Jonathan Edwards' famous resolutions, which he penned before his 20th birthday, the 70th resolution is this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. What a resolution. That doesn't mean that there's no place for leisure or that we have to um, be frantic about it, as I said, but this is a very pervasive command of God. Think of it this way. God's will involves the daily moments of my life. How am I to redeem them, looking to Jesus Christ my Lord, looking to his strength, looking to his wisdom, so that I'm not unwise, but more and more wise? It's amazing how seemingly insignificant daily moments are or, or they might seem insignificant, um, but when we look at them long-term, they're important. Anyone who's ever done something for 10 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day, if you've practiced the piano, some of you kids here, your parents probably make you practice, right? And you think, oh, what's, what's the use in this? But, but if you do that day after day, week after week, for the most part, you'll advance in wondrous ways. Maybe you'll find a lifelong joy in playing that instrument. And we think about the disciplines of the Christian life, such as prayer, such as memorizing Scripture, or we think about conversations we have, maybe just a word. Don't we all know how someone has just said a sentence or two to us, and we've been encouraged and blessed? And we think back to Ephesians 4, 29, where it talks about let your words, let, let no corrupting t- talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. It may be that there's a, a moment, a special occasion that God is going to use you in a, be- a fellow believer's life or maybe in someone who doesn't know Christ. In your relationships, in the way you greet others, maybe at your school or at your job. One marriage book talks about husbands focusing on the first four minutes of coming home with their wife and just focusing on how was her day, listening to her, talking to her. Uh, That's that's a four-minute discipline. Can you do that? Who knows what blessing might result from that little slice of your life or serving others, or glorifying God 
in the everyday activities of life. In the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. One of the things everyone seems to say at this time of year is, how long until springtime? You know, in the summertime, it's the opposite. It's like, boy, summer's just zooming by. You know, but in the winter, it just keeps on going like it's forever winter and never springtime. But the reality is, and especially those who are a little bit older in life know that life is flying by. Isn't how it is? Life just seems more and more that way. And so certainly in light of that reality that life is getting away from us, don't be haphazard, the apostle is saying, in your walk. Be intentional. Be careful about your walk. Secondly, what does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Is to diligently seek to understand God's revealed will in your life. It means to diligently seek to understand God's revealed will in your life. Here we come to verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here we come specifically to the issue of God's will. And here we're commanded to know the will of God. Now, the Scriptures speak often about the sovereign will of God, and it speaks also about the revealed will of God. And we must not confuse the two. So James can say in James chapter 4 that if you go to a city to buy and sell and get gain there, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. James isn't speaking about the revealed will of God, the Word of God. He's speaking about the sovereign will of God and about the, the necessity of acknowledging to God, I don't know whether you'll uphold me or guide me here tomorrow. I might not even be on this earth tomorrow. I need to be prayerfully dependent on you and say and mean it. If the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And James was upbraiding them for the fact that they were not doing that. You do not know the secret will or counsels of God. If you're if you're looking for a job, don't you sometimes wish that you knew that the Lord would write it in the sky, take this job? Or some of you students applying to colleges this year, and you know, you've applied to your top three or four schools, and you're going back and forth and looking at the financial packages and the courses offered, and wouldn't it be nice if there was an audible voice saying, John Light, go to this school? No, you don't know the secret will of God, the sovereign will of God. And if you're thinking about marrying someone, you know, that's another thing that you'd like to know. Is this according to God's will? Of course, there are biblical principles to apply to all those areas of life as you seek to be wise. But that's not, that's not the kind of knowledge, that kind of knowing the sovereign will of God that the apostle is speaking about here. He's speaking about knowing the revealed will of God. And the Christian walk is tied in with knowing the revealed will. Don't be foolish, foolish in a moral way, but understand what the Lord's will is. Reminds us of Romans 12, where it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you hear what? Scripture is saying there. He's saying there's this transformation that's going on in the Christian's life. It's by the renewing of our minds. And that renewal is by testing and approving in life 
what is that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's the revealed will of God. His moral will, the Scriptures show us what the will of God is in so many ways. And Ephesians is full of that. Paul has just been speaking about what they're to put off and put on. This is the revealed will of God, and it's a vital aspect of our Christian walk and growth. And so you and I need to realize that the world is always offering an alternative interpretation of reality. The world is always trying to squeeze us into its mold. The world is always seeking to interpret life for us in a worldly, fallen, sinful way. You know, the supreme irony of reality shows is that they are not real. (laughs) You know, I've seen a little bit of some of these reality shows, and I've read the newspaper accounts of people from the area who get on these reality shows sometime. And what these contestants always say is this. We're on this show, we're about ready to sing, or something like that, and there's somebody with the microphone trying to get us to say something strange. You know, they're trying to get us to have drama, to have tension, to be overwhelmed with emotion or joy so that the show can look good. And people who who do those things walk away saying, that's weird, because it's all hype, And that may be obvious for reality TV if you're involved in that, but the world is oh so much more subtle, but it's still not true. It's like a really, really good reality show where you don't even know the producer's trying to get you to do that. Don't be foolish, Paul says. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So how do we rightly interpret our world and our lives? We must understand the revealed will of God. And that's not something mysterious, but it is something spiritual. It involves the work of the Spirit of God, and it's more than mere knowledge. You can know the Bible really well and not be very wise in knowing the Lord's will. Here's how I would describe it in three subpoints. One is... Prayerful meditation on God's Word by various, various methods. In other words, you've got to get God's Word into your mind. Those methods might vary. You can read the Bible on your own. You can study it. You can have family devotions. You can read Christian books. You can hear preaching, teaching. You can go to Sunday school classes. Fellow Christians can talk to you and talk to you about what's wise. All those are good ways to get God's Word into your mind, but you've got to use some way. You've got to be meditating on God's Word. So prayerful meditation, you start thinking about God's Word. And then, the second sub-point, that prayerful meditation is attended by the work of the Holy Spirit in illuminating us. We don't believe the Holy Spirit inspires us in the sense of the writers of Scripture were inspired and received revelation from God directly, but we do believe that as we read and meditate on God's Word, the Holy Spirit illuminates the believer's heart and mind. And the Holy Spirit applies the Word specifically so that as we meditate, part one, the Holy Spirit is doing His work convicting us, showing us truth, 
This is how it applies to your relationship with your wife. This is how it applies at your school. This is how it applies when somebody mocks you for your faith. This is how it applies in coming alongside and encourage somebody. This is how it applies in a certain temptation that you face. You know, in other words, we, we are convicted. We see the command of God. We believe the promises of God. And we see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We behold him. That's all part of the work of the Spirit, applying the revealed will. That's part of understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then the third subpoint would be that this results in wholehearted effort to change the way we live. You see where it comes to our walk. We get God's Word into our minds, part one. The Holy Spirit applies it, and then we act on that, hopefully by the power of the Spirit. Paul is speaking to Christians here. And he says, don't be foolish. In other words, Christians can be foolish. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. This means in daily life we are seeking to remember and apply and believe God's word. What we see here is that understanding God's will is about our minds, our lives being transformed by the Spirit, as our minds are renewed by the Word of God. So, our minds are renewed and our lives are transformed. A beautiful thing. John Newton, most of you know who he is, the famous pastor and hymn writer, is a good example of this, really a dramatic example of this. When you think before, he was conver- before his conversion, he was a foul-mouthed, ungodly sailor, and really only concerned with making money in the slave trade. And even though he went through, through some great trials, for a time he was chained on the African coast by a so-called friend of his. And he went through various things like that. But even then, he didn't turn to the Lord. And clearly, if you looked at his life, you would say, that's a foolish life. Foolish in the biblical sense of living life apart from God. And John Newton had been schooled in the Scripture up to age five or six by his mom, had learned the Word of God until she died. But then Newton's famous conversion took place, and he came to Christ. And most of us know the rest of the story there. He became a pastor and a hymn writer and a man greatly used by God. And he began to live out a right understanding of the will of God. That's just one example Don't be foolish. His former life was foolish. And then he comes to Christ, and he begins to understand the will of the Lord and live a servant life to others and be used by God. So to walk in the Spirit is to diligently seek to understand and apply God's revealed will in your life. But finally, to walk in the Spirit, what that looks like is to seek to live daily in the power of the Spirit, to seek to live daily in the power of the Spirit. We see this in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with Spirit. And then after that imperative, be filled with the Spirit, there are four participles that follow from that. Paul is saying, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, addressing one another, singing in your heart, giving thanks, submitting. 
Let me briefly look at those four. The first is in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And certainly that has to do with congregational singing and praise and singing in your home. But also, I think there's something more than that. It's almost as if Paul sang, you know how the psalms speak to us? He's saying, let your life be almost psalm-like, that you uh, encourage each other in that way with the kind of wisdom that is evident in the psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, speaking the wisdom of God to one another. And then in the second half of verse 19, he says, singing, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart or in your heart. Notice how this singing is sincere because it's with your heart. It's not just outwardly singing. Don't we all know it's possible to sing a hymn, especially a hymn that we might not know very well, and you're trying to get the tune down, and you think, you know, what's that person wearing over there? And you're distracted, and you're singing, but it's not very much in your heart. Paul says a characteristic and evidence of being filled with the Spirit is wholehearted singing to the Lord. And then in verse 20, this evidence of giving thanks. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How comprehensive this evidence is. Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we can give thanks always and for everything is because we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that all of life comes to us from His providential, sovereign, loving hand. And so only in His name can we do that because we know that we belong to Him even in the deepest trials. There is this giving thanks. And finally in verse 21, the fourth characteristic is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here, there is this sense of in the body of Christ, there's active fellowship going on. There's shared life. There's mutual submission. And so, being filled with the Spirit is going to show up even in our relationships with others, in our families, in our marriages, even in the church, where often we see one another's sins. Now, in some ways, these four evidences are avenues to being filled with the Spirit. I don't want to absolutely say that's not the case, but I don't think it is actually that Paul's giving us four steps to being filled with the Spirit. I think he's saying, be filled with the Spirit, and this is what will flow from a Spirit-filled life. And so we might ask, well, how are we filled with the Spirit? Do you notice it's a passive command? Be filled. That's a passive command. In other words, God has to fill us. Don't be drunk on wine. Don't let wine fill you, but be filled with the Spirit. And I believe the answer, we've already seen in Ephesians, I think the answer is prayerful dependence that we are to be prayerfully dependent on the Spirit. We are to cry out to the Spirit, to the Lord God, to fill us. We we can look back to chapters 1 and 3 and look at the two major prayers of Paul in Ephesians. And we see in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's speaking to Christians, and he's saying, I'm praying 
that God would give you in a greater sense, in a fuller sense, the Spirit of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, we see the same thing where Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Both of these are prayers for the fullness of the Spirit. We don't believe in a a two-stage conversion in this church that you're saved and then further on down the line, then you're filled with the Spirit. No, we believe every Christian, when they're saved, when they come to faith in Christ, is filled with the Spirit. But we do believe in multiple, multiple fillings, so to speak, that daily we are to be being filled with the Spirit through prayerful dependence. Do we want to know what a life uh, filled with the Spirit looks like? Well, here it is. Nothing dramatic in the terms that the world would think. This kind of life can be lived in a hospital bed. It can be lived by a young mom at home with preschool kids ready to pull out her hair. It can be lived in a, a difficult work environment with a hard boss. It can be lived at your high school or your elementary school with maybe difficulties with other kids there. It's a lifestyle centered on God, focused on the Lord and building up those around you. And it means that we will be actively trusting in the Spirit's power instead of worldly substitutes. Notice how Paul introduces this in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's dissipation. It's, it's sin. It's wrong. It's not uplifting. But he says, he mentions the substitute of getting drunk, which when you think of it, if you're filled with wine, what does that do to you? It gives you a false comfort, maybe a false boldness. And someone thinks he can do anything. Or maybe it gives comfort in the sense of drowning other sorrows of this life. But being filled with wine is representative of any other type of substitute for the Spirit of God. It includes not only wine, but it would include drugs. And not only those things, but the the more socially acceptable substitutes for fullness, like comfortable lives. Don't be filled with comfort only, but be filled with the Spirit. Or don't be filled with money and power or materialism. Or don't be filled with sex only. Or don't be filled with trying to control other people's lives or your reputation or what other people think of you or your job as a substitute for the Lord or your appearance or anger or any other hobby or sporting event or anything that, that gets to the level of substituting for the fullness of the Spirit. You could put almost anything in there. Instead, be controlled by be filled by the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that is fundamentally true for every believer. Positionally, we are filled with the Spirit. We have the Spirit. We're baptized in the Spirit. Now, live that way. We can't work it up, but we can call out to God to let it be realized in our lives. 
Only one thing can change us in our very souls. And that is the work of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ makes us new creations. And we should just stop here, and I should ask you, as we talk about a life filled with the Spirit, you can't live that if you haven't been fundamentally transformed by the work of Christ. If you haven't trusted in Him, if you haven't called upon Him and given Him your life, and then He gives you this new desire to know God and to rejoice in God and to sing in your heart to the Lord, and then to walk in a way pleasing to the Lord with His fullness. And yes, there are many ups and downs, and there are days that we're not very filled with the Spirit. That is the nature of the Christian life and experience. But one clear result of conversion is that you will be filled with the Spirit and be filled with this praise to God. And God calls you to take all the broken pieces of your life that you see and to believe God's truth and trust Jesus Christ and trust that He is at work and to be able to thank Him in all things. What a description of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. Teddy Roosevelt knew what it was to live life out of grief. You and I may experience the highs and lows of the emotions, all the range of emotions of human existence, but in all of life, we can know that we're called to walk in the Spirit to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we hear this grand description. We read about it. We view it. We know it's right. We know your word is true. But we grieve in the sense that we fall short, and we look to you. We know that you are at work, and we thank you for that. And we pray that this week, in each one of our lives, as we go forth from here and as we go back to the normalcy of our lives, the everyday kind of routines that we are involved with, we pray that it would be with a greater sensitivity to your Spirit, that it would be with a greater desire to walk wisely, to make the best use of the time, to not be foolish, but to understand your will, to be filled with the Spirit. Help us, Lord. We thank you that you promise to be present in our lives, to give us your strength for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.